hot flashes, vaginal dryness, painful sex, low libido, recurrent urinary tract infections, weight gain, insomnia, orgasm? What orgasm? Menopause is a very special time, and I'm betting you've not gotten a lot of information from your own doctor. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker, a clinical professor of obstetrics and gynecology, the medical director of the Northwestern Medicine Center for Sexual Medicine and Menopause, a practicing gynecologist, best-selling author, and a nationally recognized menopause expert. My mantra has always been, if women are given good information, they'll make good choices. And I'm here to give you the inside information on all things menopause. Dr. Steven Snyder is a psychiatrist, a sex therapist, a sexual medicine specialist, the author of Love Worth Making, and a really great guy. I know this because a few years ago, we spent two entire days together on the set of the Today Show, taping a series of segments called This is 50 to celebrate Hoda Cobb's 50th birthday. We even spent an entire day at New York's Museum of Sex, where Dr. Snyder and I interviewed multiple midlife couples about their sex lives. And there's a link to those segments in the program notes. As you can imagine, it was a couple of intense days, but we not only had a great time, but realized that we really complimented each other since I was more focused on the physical challenges of having sex midlife, but Dr. Snyder was more focused on the relationship challenges. And today I am really looking forward to continuing the conversation we started in New York. So welcome Dr. Snyder. Thank you, Lauren. Such a pleasure. And, uh, remember those days fondly. Uh, you were the one who taught me uh, that uh, humans were only one of two kinds of animals that had menopause. The others That's you right. told me, I, I, and you asked me to guess the other, and I never could have guessed it in a million years. You told me it was whales. Whales. And it was one species of whales, particularly. Everyone else pretty much dies when they go through menopause. Yeah. All right. Um, you know, I work with a lot of female sex therapists. In fact, I only work with female sex therapists. And while you treat both men and women, one of the things that you do better than anyone is to offer ways for women to understand what's going on in men's heads. So talk about that for a little bit. Yeah, it's absolutely the most common reason that people come see me in my office is, as I say in my in my book, um, my man has gone missing in bed. You know, there's nothing going on there. It's like we're roommates and I don't know what to do. And so they want to bring the, uh, the partner, the male partner to somebody who speaks fluent male. And I'm a native speaker, you know, so I'm, I'm a guy. And it really is different. You know, there's, there's this whole thing. It's kind of politically difficult these days. The way I think about it, you know, before the 1970s, male psychology was kind of seen as the ideal. Everybody thought, you know, women, they're too relational in their considerations. They don't have these absolute judgments that are needed for proper function. Um, and uh, the person who changed all that uh, in the 1970s was a psychologist in Boston, uh, Carol Gilligan. You know her book, In a Different Voice? No, I don't. Oh, it's worth reading. It's magnificent. Read it. What she did is she uh, did lots of studies of teenage girls. And she said, you know what? Women are more relational. They think more about relationships. They base their thinking and decisions more on relationships. And that's valid. And it's it's a different voice. It's not better. It's not worse. It's just different. So it completely revolutionized their thinking about psychology and about female psychology. 
these days. Now, can I interrupt you for one second? Because I yeah. want to go back to the teenage girl thing. Because yeah, yeah. you know, there's there's been recent work that looks at one of the reasons that teenage girls have a different attitude towards sexuality isn't so much that they're more interested in relationship, but that societally they are brought up to believe that their role is to pleasure the man as opposed for them to have pleasure. And and therefore this concept of they're more interested in the relationship, is that because they're really more interested in the relationship or because they don't have an expectation of being sexually satisfied? You know, I think there's an element of that. It's it's not uh, it's not the way I think about it. Um, when I talk to adult women about their early experiences as teens, um, what I hear is that for many of them, desire had already kicked in. They already knew what arousal was like. They'd already had orgasms. They'd already masturbated. And for those women, whether they felt free to express that dependent on exactly the factors that you talk about, whether they feel like a woman is entitled to sexual pleasure or whether she's supposed to just pleasure the man. There also are other women for whom it really hasn't kicked in yet. You know, they're saying, they're like, what's the big deal? It's like it didn't, uh, uh, somehow it didn't happen yet. And it doesn't happen until a little bit later um, until perhaps they meet a certain guy and they go, wow, okay. Or if they're, you know, or a certain woman, if they're lesbian and they go, wow, now I understand what it's all about. I think for many women, it's a latent or potential uh, uh, capacity, the capacity to become fully aroused that doesn't really kick in until a little bit later. So you hear women saying my 20s, my 30s, my 40s. Yeah, that's when it really came together for me. And I don't think it's necessarily just that they had this idea that the man's pleasure was more important. Yeah. The other thing I wanted to circle back to and ask you about is you talked about when when couples come to see you for therapy yeah. and you know they want to get inside the guy's head. Do women usually come on their own or do they come with their male partner and does he come kicking and screaming or is he? He comes, he comes kicking and screaming because here's the way that I think there's some bedrock something, um, at least as a generalization about men and women, that women do have a greater relational orientation. You watch The Bachelor. You know those scenes in The Bachelor where they get the characters, the, the, the individuals on stage within this thing in the round, and they're talking to each other, and usually she's telling the guy what a creep he is, um, and the audience is wrapped in attention, right? The audience is almost exclusively women, and they are following everything, every nuance, every gesture, every word he said, every word she said. They're thinking about it. They're processing it. There are not that many guys that like to do that. Some may have the capacity to it, but they don't really like to. It's like what they say about STEM fields, you know, about women in engineering and mathematics. Yeah, a lot of women completely have the capacity to do that. It's just not what they love. But most women have an innate um at least most women that I've met have an innate <laughs> interest and liking for thinking about relationships. Yeah. Most well, I have to say you are, you are right on target when you talk about the bachelor, because I admit I have never watched the bachelor, but my daughter is obsessed. And every Monday night she gets together with a group that have been getting together for years watching yeah. the bachelor and my daughter's a sex therapist. So it's not wow. like, she, you know, and, and her friends are very, very evolved, educated, interesting yeah. women, and they are obsessed. I think it's the, it's, I think it is something that does have some kind of innate 
quality to it. It's like uh, it's like obsession with uh, with babies. Not that many men are baby crazy, but many women are kind of like, you know, you see it with, with all sorts of primates, primates all over the primate kingdom. The, the females are baby crazy. You put them in a baby in their midst and they just go nuts. And the, the, the men just just don't, not in the same way. I think it's the same thing with relationships. Most uh, human females that I've encountered, obviously only a slight, no, but you know, New York is a harbor town. I've, I, I see women from all over the world. And it, it, it's a thing. They're thinking about relationships and they like to think about relationships. So a woman comes in to a couple's therapy situation. She goes, oh boy, we're going to talk about a relationship. And the guy just, you can be capable of it. He just doesn't like it. It's just not something he's innately interested in. Yeah, that's interesting. So one of your blogs, you have great blogs. I've been reading your blogs. And one of your blogs, you you mentioned that rats have an amazing sex life. And, you know, maybe that's why there's so many rats out there. But <laughs> That's definitely why there's so many sex. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> having sex all the time. But what can humans learn from rats? The idea about rats gets back to this idea of a woman whose man has gone missing in bed. And uh, you bring the man in and you talk to the two of them and you go, you know, um, you're not initiating sex. And he goes, uh, well, why do I need to? I mean, aren't we supposed to be equal? If she wants sex, why didn't she initiate? She just kind of looks up at the ceiling. And uh, and I tell the guy, okay, well, how can I explain this? What I say to the guy is that heterosexual mating is a little bit like couples dancing. It's not symmetric. Traditional couples dancing, the men and women have different roles. The man, The woman is the principal object of attention. Um, nobody talks about how ravishing the man looks or how beautiful his outfit. His role is he's the prime mover. He's supposed to lead. And if you get a guy who won't lead or initiate or doesn't know how to lead, that's a problem. And just like in couples dancing, the uh, women that I talk to, when they describe a really great sexual experience, Usually it has this asymmetry that we see in heterosexual couples. I say, what's the, what's the one word that would really capture the ultimate sexual experience? And many women go, surrender. I want to surrender to somebody who knows really what they're doing. And I want to surrender, if they're heterosexual, to a man who's worthy of being surrendered to and has proven to me that he's worried, worthy of being surrendered to. So that's uh, that's a thing. And that is the, the essence of at least in our couple. And I think in most in our culture, and I think in most cultures, heterosexual mating. You with me so far or you, you want to fight me on this? one? No, no. I just I was just smiling because I'm thinking I probably shouldn't admit this, but I love to dance. And my first husband who I divorced, I was yeah. always the one who led when we were dancing. Bad idea. I Bad know. Idea. We should have yeah. met with you first, but things might have gone a lot better, right? Exactly. Or maybe it may have just been a bad match. I talked to a lot of couples therapists and sex therapists who've been married twice and they go, yeah, the first one, it just wasn't going to work. We just weren't suited to each other. And you know, a lot of this is partner selection. Um, so anyhow, the guy, if he gets that, that's good. If he doesn't, I say, look, it's like playing tennis. You're a guy. It's always your serve. And he goes, that doesn't seem fair. I go, yeah, I know it's not fair, but it's just is. And I say, okay, let me think of it this way. If you're a man, uh, you like to be desired. 
but you don't really crave being desired like a woman does. For a woman, it's been said, um, I, I, I can't take responsibility or blame for this. It was said by a very prominent sex therapist. Um, for most women, being desired is more important than orgasm. And the idea that, that it's, the, it's the thing. And to be, you know, there's a magazine, there used to be at least, called Allure, you know, A-L-L-U-R-E, Allure. Yeah. The whole magazine about being desired, about Allure, how to get the Allure, you know, how to get the Allure, your hair, your eyes, your makeup, body, whatever it is. And being desired is like key. It's just absolute. I mean, you know, the cosmetics industry is just huge. And so if a woman doesn't feel desired, there's something really, really lacking. So if she's asking you to dance, it doesn't do it for her. She's, yeah. she's not getting half the experience. And if he's still saying really dense, I go, look, let me tell you how rats do it. I promised you we'd get to rats. And uh, you, you and I know how rats do it. There's a guy named Jim Faust. P-S-A-U-S, if you want to look I him up. I spent a lot of time with Jim Faust. Okay. Not only is he the most amazing researcher and lecturer, but he's just great fun to hang out with. He's a great guy. He's a great guy. Um, he, I was at a sex therapy meeting once, national sex therapy meeting, lots of people there, and he showed the videos of how rats made it. I've seen those videos. And you've seen the videos, too. We should have and a rat video media night, too. Uh, a great night, and you can even put one in at some point in a podcast. Do you want to tell what they, how they, what they do, or do you want me to tell it? No, please, go for it. Okay. The female rat goes in front of the male rat, and she kind of wiggles her backside and then darts off. And what the male rat is supposed to do is he's supposed to chase her. And if he doesn't chase her, it's a big problem. No mating occurs. He chases her. He goes as fast as he can. She runs away as fast as she can. They go big, 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 around the cage. And eventually, if he has chased her with enough energy and enthusiasm, she lets him catch her. And they mate, which takes like, I don't know, half a second. Um, and so the foreplay is the chasing. And the interesting thing about the video was the reaction of the audience. It seemed like every woman in the audience was jumping out of her seat going, that's it. That's it. That's what we need. Um, we want to be chased. And so anyhow, this is, you know, I, I, as you know, I wrote a book, Love Worth Making, about uh, sexuality. And I had a lot of publishers turn it down because it talked about men and women as being different. Uh, they didn't like that because you can't really do that these days. But we finally had a couple publishers who, who went for it. Um, and uh, there's chapter seven, which talks about uh, women, and it's entitled The Woman in the Mirror. And for most women, uh, really, really good sex requires that you really, really feel good about how you look in the mirror. And one of the ways you know you look really good in the mirror is just somebody's chasing. Kind of buy this whole concept, except it sounds kind of retro. It sounds kind of old school that women have to play this game of being hard to get in order to be, you know, properly aroused, if you will. And and it's an interesting concept. And when you talk about how women want to be desired more than they want to have an orgasm, I think I would change that statement a little bit and say that a woman is more likely to have an orgasm if she's feeling desired because being desired leads to arousal. Arousal leads to orgasm. Absolutely. Without question. Without question there. Um, but uh, there was something you were saying 
the, 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 you said it a minute ago just now about being the hard about playing this it's almost like playing a game the hard to the hard oh to, yeah you, you know, know we're I told because it's part it, of the I, thing when i was growing yeah. up and and you were told well you know don't be too easy you've got to be a little yeah. bit hard to get and you're like oh mom yeah, you know exactly. really come on you know that's right, so, so, here's the thing. so here's, here's how i look at here's how i look at it. the working at being hard to get or engineering things so that the guy will chase you no woman wants to do that yeah, women are working hard enough. They got a million things they're doing. Women are working hard enough. They're working much more harder than men are. What most women that I talk to want is they want not to have to work it. They want the guy to come home and just like want to rip their clothes off. Now, they don't always want their clothes to be ripped off. You know, it's, sometimes it could be annoying. But for most women that I talk to, it's like water pressure in the shower. They want good water pressure in the shower. So that whenever they want to shower, they know there's good water pressure there. If ever they feel like sex, they could just, you know, run past him. He's going to chase them. Um, the ideal would be not to have to work at it at all. I think the, the working at it is drag. So that brings me to the to the next topic, which is this whole concept of date night. You know, the, the therapists that I work with, um, they're they're very big on the concept of date night because their yeah. whole approach is a lot of desire, a lot of libido is about anticipation. You know, in a new yeah. relationship, when you're first going out with someone, you spend the day thinking, oh, I'm going to be with yeah. person tonight yeah. and I'm going to shave my legs and I'm going to put on the sexy underwear. And yet you say, no, you are not a fan of the concept of date night. So explain. Yeah, two things. First of all, I want to talk about anticipation because that's really important. Um, anticipation, I believe... I'm going to get in trouble for saying this, but I believe is mostly a female attribute. You know, Carly Simon wrote that great song in the 70s, Anticipation. I have all my patients listen to it. <laughs> I have all my male patients listen to it so they can understand what women experience. Very, very few men experience that kind of erotic anticipation. It's just not how we think. Um, so I would say that that's only true. The anticipation thing is only true for half the population. Um, you work in Chicago, right? Yep. Yeah. All the sex therapists in Chicago talking about date night. I don't know. Maybe it works in Chicago, but it doesn't work in New York. Okay. What I see in New York is that, and I don't know why, is that couple says, all right, Thursday evening, we're going to get the kids to bed early and we're going to be rested and so forth. And we'll get to bed and we'll have sex. And it's bad sex. And the reason it's bad sex is because there's no desire. Now, maybe if they've kind of warmed up and she's done the anticipation and he sent her sexy texts and so forth, um, and maybe if uh, you know they've done whatever to, to kind of think about sex and prepare, but uh, I, I find it doesn't work that well. Uh, I find it it's a little bit like making reservation for a restaurant. You get there and you're not hungry. Um, my, I, what I do in my book is, is I go a little different direction. I say, assume you won't be hungry. Rather than trying to cultivate desire through anticipation, I think when you cultivate desire, you risk disappointment. Because what if desire isn't there? So I say, assume you're not going to be hungry. Because you've been living together for 20 years. I mean, you know, it's just, it's just that's the way it goes. You don't experience the same, even if he's texting you all sorts of wonderful things, it's just not going to be the same. Um, instead, you're not going to try to cultivate desire. What you're going to try and do, or what you're going to do, there's no trying, 
is just to cultivate awareness. So the technique that I talk about is called the two-step. And so a couple will go to uh, bed not to have sex, but to do step one. And step one is go to bed, take off all your clothes, and do absolutely nothing at all. You may have a little bit of a conversation, but don't get into any arguments or big discussions. Just, you know, whatever, blah, 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 blah. You're just, just listening to the sound of each other's voice, which is a key thing. So you're cultivating awareness. Because as you know, the human mind, mindfulness people talk about this a lot. Human mind has two modes. The first is thinking and doing, which is what you and I are doing right now. And the second is awareness, which is what arises when you stop thinking and doing. So we're all thinking and doing all the time. And we're just going to turn off our phones, get to bed, do absolutely nothing at all. And we just pay attention to our feet and the temperature in the room and what you can see outside and so forth. That, you know, maybe that's in New York, you can't see anything outside. Yes, <laughs> Chicago. Um, you have so no just, choice but to just focus on each other. <laughs> exactly. So, um, and you're going to uh, just let yourself get into a bit of a mindful state. And then once you're in the mindful state, assuming you've chosen well and your partner body does appeal to you, one of you will turn to the other and just start to experience the other person's body. And there was no desire. But once you start experiencing the other person's body, you may experience some inspiration. And once the person starts experiencing your body, you may experience some inspiration. And it's that inspiration that leads you into step two, which is to have good sex. So you don't need desire. All you need to do is find a source of inspiration there. So it's a whole different concept. Well, it's the whole idea of turning upside down the the Freudian linear concept of first you feel desire and then, exactly. you know, it's that you can enter that at, at any point. You might not feel desire, but exactly. if you are um, open to the idea of being with this it's person. exactly what it is. It's because it's, it's not dependent on desire. One of the reasons I wrote my book was because I searched so many books that talk about how to create desire, go to a sexy bar, pretend you don't know each other, text each other during the day, that kind of stuff. It works unless you've been married 20 years. And then it doesn't. Um, then you're really looking for inspiration. So that's my pitch. That's the two-step. The concept of the sex knot is something else that you talk about, and that ties into the whole two-step um, approach, correct? It, it can be a means of untying sex knots. Okay, so let me tell you what uh, uh, what we're talking about, about a sex knot. A sex knot is uh, where each person's natural reaction to a situation makes everything worse. So that eventually it's like a vicious cycle. It's another name for a vicious cycle. <clears throat> so let me tell you <clears throat> a, a, a very important example of one. And it relates to what we were talking before, which is men going missing in bed. So a woman drags her husband in and says, what's wrong with him? He's no passion. He never initiates sex. He never notices me anymore. He's just uh, inert. There's just no male energy. I feel like we're just roommates. Um, and this is the big problem in the 20th, 21st century. Um, you know, in the 20th century, it was just not tonight, dear, I have a headache. I don't hear that anymore. Um, usually women are a little more enlightened. They're, they're, they're interested. They're interested in, in having sex. And strangely, it's the guys who've gone missing in bed. So we don't really know exactly what that's about. Um, but, uh, I'm often asked, you know, what, what do men really want? What, what do they really need? Um, and men are very, very simple. You know, it's, it's, you're going to say it's a tired old gender stereotype. It's really, really true. There's a lot of books about how men are really very complicated too. They're all written by women. 
Um, really, I can tell you as a guy, as a guy, we're simple. We're really, really simple. If you want to look at what men want, you look at the classic Playboy centerfold from the 1970s. And it had three ingredients. The first thing was she had a rockin' hot bun. Um, the second ingredient is she had $5,000 worth of hair and makeup. Okay. Those are, okay, if you're going to look for a centerfold, those are important. But a regular woman doesn't have to do that. She just has to be with a guy who basically likes what she has. You know, so if he's chosen well and she's chosen well, somebody who desires her, she's good. You can forget those. Two. The third is the real piece de resistance. The third is the anchovy and the Caesar salad. You open the centerfold and she's got this enormous welcoming smile. And the smile says, oh, it's you. Oh, I'm so glad you brought this magazine. Let's go have a good time. So it's a smile that a woman naturally makes when she's happy. The third thing that a man needs and wants in bed or out of bed is for the woman to be happy with him. And men are very, very And then again, the third thing that a man needs in bed and out of bed is for the woman to be happy with him, to give him that big smile that says she's happy with him. Yeah. Now, that's the problem, obviously, because what woman is happy all the time, right? You know, everybody knows that. So the big male dilemma is that especially if you live with somebody, they're not happy all the time. And they're certainly not happy with you all the time. What do you do with that? And the big female dilemma is most women know intuitively that guys are a little vulnerable that way. And they're having unhappy thoughts a hundred times a day. And maybe they'll tell the guy one and the guy will say, you're always criticizing, you know? So mm-hmm. it's, a, it's, a, it's a big dilemma. There's a, there's a the hetero, that I give a talk once called the heterosexual dilemma. Heterosexual life is very, very difficult. You know, it's a good thing that it's so socially sanctioned and approved. Otherwise, nobody would want to do it. It's really hard. Um, so here's what happens. Here's a sex knot. They're living together. And uh, she uh, is uh, kind of feeling unhappy about something. And he feels that it's unsafe to approach her for sex under those circumstances. Feels too dangerous. Women's unhappiness feels very, very dangerous for men for reasons we could spend an hour talking about. Um, And uh, so he kind of avoids her. Now, what does that do to her sense of happiness? No, it brings it way down, right? Because no woman wants to be avoided. Um, And uh, so that makes her really unhappy. So now she's really not smiling. And that makes him avoid her even more. So that's a basic sex knot. That's the basic reason that men pull away a bit, is they feel on some level, consciously or unconsciously, in a big way or in a subliminal way, that the woman is just really not that thrilled with them. It's really not that happy with them. Um, and they feel criticized. And the woman feels in a terrible dilemma because she's aware of this on some level. So she tries not to criticize the guy, but every once in a while, like something slipped through because you know, she's not she's not a machine. Um, and so this is just the heterosexual dilemma. And each person's natural reactions make the thing worse. So what's the solution? The solution is very, very early on in a relationship, and this is half serious, but but there's an element to it. Um, A woman should sit down with a man, heterosexual woman should sit down with her man before things get too hot and heavy and say, you know, sometimes I'm not going to be so happy about things. Sometimes I'll even be disappointed. Guys hate disappointing. They just can't stand it. 
sometimes I'm really going to be disappointed, but yeah, God, what you really know, and I'll repeat it as many times as you need to hear it. It's okay. I can be disappointed. It's okay. I can feel disappointed and I still love you and I still want you. And I want you to know that because it's going to be very stressful. And anyhow, that's the thought. All right. I want to get your take on something. A few years ago, I did a survey, never published it. I should. And I surveyed a thousand men about what are your biggest bedroom turnoffs? Yeah. And I did it just for the fun of it. Honestly, I wasn't doing it for scientific purposes. I was doing it because yeah. I thought it would make a great article. Yeah. And um, the number one turnoff, and it was multiple choice. There was an opportunity for them to fill things in. But the number one thing was um, the biggest turnoff was was hygiene. We don't have to get into that. You know, I tell women. Men saying that women's hygiene was the biggest turnoff? If they, if they didn't have good hygiene. So I tell people, don't don't worry so much about if you have big thighs, just take a shower. But Okay. But the second thing, the second thing that just kept coming up again and again and again is, to your point, a woman who was not responsive. Men hate when they are in bed with their partner and that person is just silent, who's yeah. not saying, you know, oh, my God, this is wonderful or I love what you're doing and all that. So does that kind of tie into what you're talking about? Is that I think it does. I think it does. Um, it's a little bit different. I think it relates to the fact that sex is very infantile. I talk about this a lot in my book. Um, and this is true for men and women, that it's a re-evocation of mother-infant bonding. And in mother-infant bonding, the most amazing mother in the world, the most amazing baby in the world, and neither of this is true, but everybody believes it. and You feel it, and it's just the two of you, and there's eye contact and emotion and physical and the emotions and the physical are all bound up together and or caretaker infant bonding and that and and that that exultant uh euphoric state is really the 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 source you know from where we're all spawned and it's all downhill from there in human life yeah. Never again will you be seen as so perfect and see the other person as so perfect. And never again will you have that exclusivity and the attention and all that sense of being wonderful and magical and being the center of the universe. As an adult, you know you're not the center of the universe. Um, in sex, you get a chance to go back. And in really, really good sex, really great sex, you really do feel that you're the center of the universe again. So is the other person. And you're the center of each other's universe. And everybody's just enthralled with everybody else. Um, and you get that feeling again. So a man really wants the woman to say, oh, <laughs> it's you. Oh, <laughs> love it. <laughs> and, and really, a woman wants the same thing. You know, this is the woman's need to be desired. Oh, you know, it's like... Uh, uh, I don't know if many of your audience read Twilight, you know, the Twilight series where a woman falls in love with a vampire. Oh, yeah. And and it's fabulous. It's like four volumes of four plagues. They can't have sex till the very end. And um, and and he just he, he just can't stop thinking about her. He is just he just watches her sleep. He's just so transfixed. Her. She's like heroin for him. You know, people just live in these pages. You know, um, And this all is an infantile thing. So I would say when a woman is not responsive, it's. It doesn't satisfy the male version of that infantile need to reevoke that sense of magical involvement. Yeah, that, would be well, that, that makes sense. That's interesting. 
So I want to switch gears a little bit while we talk okay. about what causes people to be attracted, to be aroused, to have that sex drive. You know, there's currently there's two FDA approved medications that are yeah. specifically to improve female sexual desire. Fulbanserin, yeah. which is, you know, the trade name is Addy, and Bremelanotide, which is known as Vilesi. And um, I know that a lot of, of sex therapists are dead set against these medications. I have some mixed feelings on them, which we can talk about. Yeah, but I'd love to. What your what your viewpoint is, and if you ever prescribe them? Oh yeah, I have um, I, I prescribe Addy, um, Flabanza. And let me just—I'm have- going to stop for one second because I just—I just want everyone to understand and be clear that you are an MD, you are a psychiatrist. So, right. you, unlike other therapists, obviously, um, you're you're a physician who can prescribe. Yeah, um, and I have a feeling, says an aside, that those who can't prescribe, if they could prescribe they would feel a lot more positively towards it. That's um, interesting. I think some of it is guild, uh, guild relations. Um, yeah. Because you see them very, very excited about herbal stuff. They're very excited about all sorts of herbal stuff that people can take, right? Um, but the prescription, no, 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 no. And I think it's fact they can't prescribe it, but just one man's opinion. So Addy, Flabanserin, yeah, been prescribing it since it came out uh, uh, seven years ago. So I had some very, very gratifying successes with it. Um, Vilesi, I have not. Have you prescribed Vilesi? Well, it's interesting. One of the issues for both flubanserin and bremelanotide for Addy and Vilesi is neither one, as you know, is FDA approved for women who are in menopause. Ah. And so what that means is that they either have to pay out of pocket or, you know, sometimes try and get around it. So I, I sometimes have women who are interested uh, are interested in giving it a try, but then it's cost prohibitive, so it, it doesn't happen. Um, I will tell you that with Vilesi particularly, as you know, one of the side effects is nausea and vomiting. So when I tell women that the, the potential downside is that they might want to you know throw up on their partner, a lot of them say, no, thank you. Um, have, you women, have you had women who've taken it? Very few. Very few. I've, I've written prescriptions and I always say to them, please get back to me. I want to know what happened. Yeah, I want yeah. to know what the reaction was. They rarely do. And then when I see them the next time, whenever I see them and say, hey, I wrote you that prescription. Did you try it? Almost always they say they did not. I have yeah. not had a lot of takers. Flabanserin is a little different. Women are a little bit more comfortable with flabanserin. I think, um, you know, when I tell them that, number one, it's, it's been around for a long time, we don't have the nausea problem. And then the icing on the cake is when I tell them that women actually lose weight on Fulbanson and they're like, sign me up, you know, where can I get some? And my clinical experience really mirrors the clinical trials in that about 50% of women seem to have an enhancement in their libido, which speaks to the fact that, of course, libido is multifactorial. Um, and, and what I find, and, and a lot of the sex therapists I work with are in agreement, I think the value in it is is quite frankly, kind of a kickstart. You know, a lot of times what I'm dealing with is is people who are dealing with long-term relationships, the monotony of monogamy, they're really not thinking about sex, their head's not there. Um, And a prescription for Fobanserin, whether it's the placebo effect of knowing that they're taking a sex drug or that it really is doing something, it does seem to kind of get their head in the game and and give them a a jumpstart to to their sex life. So I'm I'm curious what what your experience is. I would would offer a a slight twist on the idea of a kickstart. I like kickstarts. And the reason is that most of us, you know, our colleague Michael Perlman is always talking about this. Most of us have kind of a sexual tipping point Mm -hmm. where things are going in a positive direction rather than a negative direction. And a little bit, get you to that tipping point and you can get things rolling in a virtuous direction. Um, 
It's not placebo. Um, the studies that were done in the phase three, as you know, for the FDA, uh, 11,000 women or something like that, um, showed that it clearly separated from placebo. It showed it showed a difference. And that's hard to do with a sex drug because, right. you know, the sexual because system is so very, very yeah. and because sexual system is very suggestible. Um, so uh, so separated from placebo and the, the data were very impressive and the women for whom it worked, which is about 50 percent. I get a little more than 50 percent in my office. And I wonder if it's because I'm prescribing and doing sex therapy at the same time. I, I was just going to say that, you know, because what I have really done with, with my patients that I give a prescription is I strongly encourage them at the same time oh, yeah. to start to work with one of our sex therapists, because I really think that the dual approach yeah. is what is not only going to get them going, but it's going to sustain it. You know, it's one get someone to think about sex but then where are they a year later yeah and as you know the way you know about that is are they refilling the pill um and uh so with with the, my understanding of the the phlebanserin is you have to to get keep getting that effect you have to keep refilling it so i just watch and see how long the people are refilling it yeah um so but uh my i've, I've seen good results and and you know the results from the phase three trials was not only did it help with subjective feelings of sexual desire but it helped with self-regard um, self-image, feelings about the relationship. You had a lot of really, really nice downriver effects there. Yeah. So uh, I, I, I've always been intrigued, very intrigued as a watcher of uh, modern culture, very intrigued by the reluctance of people to think about uh, Addy Flabanser and came out seven years ago. Yeah. And the prediction was that it was going to be a blockbuster because right. about 10% of American women um, are distressed about having low sexual desire. 10% um, of women in a particular age group. That that statistic gets thrown around a lot. Yeah. And people are kind of amazed at that. And, and we know that the largest group of people that have low libido is postmenopause, but the least number of them are distressed. It's well, that, I would, I would, that I would 30 to 40 of, year old crowd that has low libido that's distressed. Well, I would say, I would say, I would, here's what I've heard from the people in the, in the phlebanserin community, you know, who are developed it. They said, look, if you're talking about distress over low libido, which is the formula for what you want to treat, right. um, they said the younger women are less likely to have low libido and more likely to be distressed by it. Correct. And the older women are more likely to have low libido and less likely to be distressed by it. And it works out about the same. Yeah. Um, but it obviously it works out depending on the person's situation. By the way, the, the postmenopausal thing was a quirk, you know. The reason it's not approved for postmenopausal women is the rating scales that they used in the studies weren't validated in postmenopausal women, so they couldn't use them. So that's, that's right. And the, and the FDA and they didn't want to go for it because it was expensive and they wanted to get it through. And it, it, I, I'm sure you're familiar with Jim Simon's work, the snowdrop trial that he specifically used flubanserin in postmenopause women. And it worked very it well. Fine. I use it in my practice. And actually, I've had patients whose insurance covers it postmenopausal. Um, so maybe that's just the quirk of these people's insurance. But uh, I don't want to get too geeky about it because the, the interesting thing, I thought it'd be a blockbuster because it does three things that most women uh, regard as somewhat favorable. One, it can improve sexual desire. Two, it can help you sleep better. A lot of patients in my office say, yeah, sleep a little bit better. Take it at bedtime, yeah. get a better night's sleep. And three, some women lose weight on it. So you put those three together. I thought it'd be a blockbuster. Um, but they, it wasn't. They, the mistake they made was not putting the weight loss at the top of the list. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, but they didn't get the FDA approval exactly, to list yeah, that they, at they the end point, but it certainly is. They couldn't. So, so here's my take on why it wasn't a blockbuster. Um, 
first of all, there was a strong anti-medicalization movement, as you know, yes. uh, among certain uh, people in the feminist community, sex therapy community. There was an organization that had the, the, the tagline, our pleasure or their profits, what's it going to be? And I thought that makes no sense at all, because if you don't give somebody pleasure, you're not going to make any profit. Um, but that being as it is, um, there's a, a school of thought, which I think is I, oppression feminism that men want to make women into just Stepford wives who will just put out even if, they, even if they're not happy. Um, and I've seen this in my practice. It does happen. The guy's a real dirtbag, and he treats her badly, and she doesn't have desire, and he comes in saying, give her some of that pig Viagra. You know, you don't want to see these kind of people. Um, but I don't think it's that common, but, but it does exist, and I can understand the worry about that. Um, I, I think a larger thing is that a woman's capacity to say no to sex um, is like the foundation of human civilization um, or a woman's capacity to insist on certain conditions. If a partner wants to have sex with her is a foundation of civilization. And at the FDA hearings, one of the first questions to come up was, is this a date rape drug? That's right. Are you going to overwhelm women's capacity to say no? Um, and this is the first of concept of this seven years ago. Nobody knew what to do with it. Um, and, it, you know, we tell people at the FDA, no, you have to take it every night. It takes two months to work. It's not that dramatic an effect. No, um, in fact, it's not. I was actually, I spoke at the FDA hearings. I was there. Yeah. It was a fascinating, fascinating day. It was really fascinating. I followed and, it on TV. Yeah. And one of the things is that the whole idea is it's going to make you hypersexual. It's a date right. rate drug. And of course not, because number one, it's not a date rate drug because like you said, it takes eight weeks for it to work. You don't drop it in the, you know, someone's martini and suddenly yeah. they're ripping off their clothes. And second, the idea of it was never, ever to hypersexualize someone. It was to give them a normal libido, a normal sexual response. Not only that, but it was to restore it for a woman who had had it and then lost it. Commonly in my practice, that happens after the second child. Um, but obviously, there's a million different kinds of stories. And, they, you know, they have FO, functional MR, MRI studies showing there's something biological that got off a little bit. Um, and so, you know, we used to just give a tiny little bit of testosterone on the skin. Uh, and that kind of worked pretty well to jumpstart. But it was hormonal. So nobody wants this. This one is non-hormonal. So yeah. uh, I think it's very interesting. I think the culture as a whole hasn't quite wrapped their head around this. One. Well, you know, I think part of the, the hesitancy is the medicalization. And when I offer women something pharmacologic to boost their libido, and again, I'm primarily seeing postmenopause women. So I say, well, we can either use Vilesi off-label or we can use um, Addy off-label or I can give you some testosterone off-label. And overwhelmingly, my patients go for the testosterone because they feel like that's something that is natural and normal and that they mm -hmm. are making anyway, because of course, yes. testosterone is not a male hormone, it's a human hormone. And I tell them that there are testosterone levels because we check, you know, are a little yeah. low and they don't think of that as medicalizing it. Do they think of that as, okay, my testosterone levels are low, let's give them a little boost and see what happens. And of course, the clinical trials for testosterone are about the same, you know, in terms of getting about a 50% response. Rate, but of course, you don't get the weight loss and the and yeah. the sleep. So it's it's really interesting. Do you prescribe? Um, then just so everyone who knows the Vilesi, the second one we talk about, primalanotide, that's an on-demand drug. It's an injection, like a little EpiPen. That thirty minutes before you're planning to have sex, you pop it into your thigh, and it gets that part of your brain working. The uh, skin the under your thighs, under the mm -hmm. skin. It's the skin, easy. right? Yeah, you yes. have it in the muscle. Right, right, right. No, the skin. And the idea being that this is going to boost your libido. And 
I thought that was going to be the blockbuster because I thought this whole idea of women don't want to take something every single day if they're only going to have sex once or twice a week. But the idea that you can um, use it on date night, which, of course, we've already established that you don't believe in date night. But I tell people, hey, date night, put on the sexy underwear, shave your legs and then just, you know, give yourself a little um, by Lucy. And I don't have any takers. Do you even offer it? I've never seen, I have very few women in my office who are even willing to use Addy. Um, the, yeah. I'll think about it later. Yeah. Um, by Lisi, I've never had anybody. Yeah. Uh, I have a, a lot, I have, I have a lot of guys who want the Lisi. Um, I've, I've, I've used guys, I've used Addy off label with appropriate disclosure. I've used Addy in guys and I've seen some, uh, some effects. Yeah, just and, and again, just everyone's aware when we talk about off label, um, off label doesn't mean not medically correct and or illegal. It just means that the FDA approved it for a specific purpose. And in the case of flipanserin, they only had women in the clinical trials. But we know that it's not hormonal and it works on a part of the brain and in a way that occurs in both men and women. So, of course, it makes good sense that it would work for for men as well. But interesting, interesting stuff. Yeah. Um so let me ask let me ask you this. Um, I talked about biggest deal breakers, biggest things that ruin it for guys. If you had to say or think of one thing that women do or say that kind of kills the moment, is is there something that women should know that they should not do? <laughs> okay, I have two answers for you. Okay, the first is uh, to bring up a problem. Um, a lot of women do this in bed. Oh, yeah, by the way, we gotta, you know, we gotta, we gotta repair the roof, you know, that kind of thing. Um, that's, that's not so good. Um, any form of criticism, of course, is not so good. Um, and, uh, uh, anything that smacks of unhappiness, uh, like we talked about the, the Playboy Centerfold. You don't have to be a Playboy Centerfold, but you want to cultivate at least some feeling of well-being, um, uh, as a prelude to sex. Um, but all those things, are different for a man than they are for a woman. Because for a man, there are not as many deal breakers. Um, it's been said that women's desire is very contextual, that it depends on a lot of factors, uh, setting, situation. Um, I hear a lot about setting. Um, uh, you know, beautiful place. Women will fantasize about being at a, at a beautiful resort. She's wearing something fabulous. It could be a typical kind of fantasy. Um, uh, relational set uh, factors, uh, setting, situation, all these things can contribute to a woman's desire. And if you interrupt some of those factors, you can really kill her desire and it can shut off like that. For instance, the classic, I have a whole article I'd love to write on this of the, the sexual neuropsychology of socks on the floor guy takes the woman in his arms carries her to the bedroom and she sees his socks on the floor boom she's lost the mood not always but it can happen we men we're not as sensitive to context we're not sent as sensitive to situation to relationship to socks on the floor to setting to any of that stuff we're just not. And I have a lot of female colleagues and I get into big arguments with them. These sex therapy meetings, they go, men's desire is, is, is contextual too. I go, no, it's not. It's really absolutely not. You just need the body and she smells nice and she's happy to see you. Well, you're good. Um, and uh, so there's not as many of those factors that can do. So the whole, whole idea about being like libido killers or that gets shut it off, we don't get shut off as easily. Um, 
the uh, you know classic example is a couple has a young child in the other room, and there's a baby monitor, and the woman said they're having the middle of lovemaking. The woman says, "I heard a noise." And the guy goes, "Ah, they're fine." And the noise, no, no, I heard a noise. I don't want to do it anymore. You know, um, so there's just things that can just snap it right off. And I think it's probably evolutionary. You know, you can't say evolution these days because people think you're being reductionistic. But I think it's probably evolutionary um, that there would be one gender whose desire could be easily shut off in case there's something that had to be taken care of. Um, and it's not the men. Uh, we, our desire is not as easily. There's not that many deal breakers. Um, so anyhow, that, that, and, you know, again, I, this reminds me of I was um, once doing an episode on Steve Harvey and we were talking about the difference between libido and, and men and, and women and this whole issue of, you know, what's going to turn a guy off. And he said something along the lines of I'm trying to remember his exact quote, because, of course, Steve Harvey was very funny, but it was something about, you know, if I'm ready to go. You can slam a car door on it, and that's not going to stop me. Exactly, exactly. Very few. Well, that pretty much very, very few women will say that. That's very few women's experience. You see those socks on the floor. That's it. You know, I have, I have a, I've had this experience more than once. I'm sitting with a late middle aged couple where the desire is very low, um, and and the woman goes, "Oh, I got a great idea. I got a great idea. Let's go to this fabulous, sexy resort." And I look at the guy, and he looks at me, and we go, ah, yeah, I might like it. It's not going to make me feel an ounce more desire than it before. Um, so I think it's a gender difference. Yeah. No, I think you're right about that. You know, so let me um, move to a, a different topic, which probably no one's asked you before. I'm kind of betting on this. But okay. I'm doing a study about periorgasmic phenomenon, and these yeah. are physical or emotional responses to orgasm that really have nothing to do with with sex. So when we talk about physical responses, there are people that get foot pain or get ear pain yeah. and yeah. hallucinate. But the emotional responses are when people laugh hysterically when they have an orgasm or they cry and it's not because of, you know, pain or bad sex. It's because after good sex, after a good orgasm. And so I'm collecting all these responses. There have been case reports and I'm finding from the study I'm doing right now that it's a lot more common than I think people realize. It's not something that people talk about. But I would like to hear your thoughts about women who um, laugh or cry at the time that they have an orgasm. Okay. You know, when you said you were going to ask me a question that nobody had ever asked me before, I thought that's impossible. But you know what? I don't think I've ever been asked that particular <laughs> question in that, in that kind of way. Um, I have heard a lot of women who laugh or cry. As a matter of fact, I think it's part of the orgasm reflex, the whole cascade for the woman to often smile afterwards. Smiling um, and laughing hysterically are not the okay, same. So laughing We're hysterically. not talking about feeling satisfied yeah. or you're talking about, warm you're, you're or happy. We're talking about someone who has peals of hysterical yeah. laughter. Yeah. I think that neurochemically it'd be understandable because you get to do this explosion somewhere in the deep in the deep in the brain. It might just hit something that that is some other center that could be. Okay, um, well, I'm about to make it more complicated because in my survey, one of the questions I ask is, does this happen when you masturbate or only? with ah, a partner and it only happens with orgasm with a partner not with fabulous. orgasm with a vibrator okay that's that, dr snyder so we've dissected this so it's so it's something something having to do with the whole emotional <laughs> matrix or something like that and i've heard of it um i've had people describe it especially with crying 
I've heard people describe the crying as very gratifying. Yeah. Hear people describe the crying as very gratifying. Yeah. But the yeah. other thing that's interesting, I'm, I'm, I'm uncovering all kinds of interesting things in this survey. I can't wait to get yeah. some more numbers and, and publish it. But what would you guess is more common, laughing or crying? Crying. Two to one. Yeah, absolutely. Two to one. I've got criers to laughers. Yeah, absolutely. I would just want to bring in one twist, which is if a woman cries after orgasm, each of the partners might experience that as kind of gratifying. What if the man cried after orgasm? I don't think it would be seen as kindly. Um, there are certain reactions that women are permitted to have during lovemaking, which are regressive experiences. They're deep emotional experiences, um, such as crying. Uh, most men are not permitted to do that. Um, men are expected to be in a little more control. Women can pout, giggle, be babyish, do baby talk. Man can't do that kind of stuff. Big turnoff. So the regression, the expected regression within the conventional script of heterosexual mating is different for a man and a woman. I so agree with you. Men and women are not the same. And that's why this has been such a pleasure to talk to you, because you really can pinpoint what some of these differences are that, quite frankly, I think a lot of people would agree with, but wouldn't necessarily be willing to admit it, if you will. Yeah, it and does that, take a little bit of courage. So they have the courage to admit it. Yeah. So thank you for your time. I will put all the information about how people can find your book, find you, find your blogs in the program notes. And I know you're working on a new book. So excited about that. Thank you. And and thank you. Look forward to giving you updates. Thank you. Lauren, always a pleasure. I'm Dr. Lauren Stryker, and thank you for joining me. You will find lots more information in my Inside Information books available on Amazon.com. And follow Francie as she navigates her way through vaginal dryness, hot flashes, and pretty much every menopausal symptom you can think of. Sometimes I feel blue